Hello and welcome to the first episode of Risk and Regulation Unraveled, our Grant Thornton's Financial Services podcast. I'm Irina Velkova, your regular host, and I bring to you conversations about the dynamic world of risk and regulations. We help our financial services clients understand new regulatory developments, upcoming changes, and how to stay ahead of the regulatory curve by inviting renowned experts to share their insights. In today's episode, I'm joined by Andrew Rogan from UK Finance, the collective voice for the banking and finance industry in the UK. Andrew is UK Finance's lead on operational resilience, and in his role as a director, he engages with government and other key stakeholders focusing on delivering positive outcomes with respect to operational resilience. I'm pleased to also welcome Tim Ahmed. Tim has been most recently the Post Office's Resilience and Business Continuity Manager and has an extensive experience in resilience matters starting as back as 1989, when the term operational resilience was not even coined. Tim has delivered solutions globally across a number of companies, including the Bank of England, BBC, Nestle, HMRC, Marathon Oil, and many others, and has worked in over 16 countries. Tim has served in the Army and is also a regular Ironman threat lead and marathon runner, which takes some serious risk management. How very impressive. You clearly know about resilience from any point of view, Tim. Great to have you today. And last but not least, we have Gavin Stewart, who is a director in our regulatory practice, ex-regulator himself and the steward of our regulatory thought leadership. Welcome, Gavin. We are recording this episode remotely, so please excuse us if this impacts the quality of the sound. As you might have guessed from the introductions of my esteemed guests, today we'll be talking about operational resilience. With the PRA and FCA's joint policy statement on operational resilience expected imminently, firms are still grappling with the requirements and any changes they may need to introduce to their businesses to be compliant. Even without the regulatory nudge though, the current COVID-19 crisis has certainly placed resilience in the spotlight. As many organizations had to transform their operations overnight to be effective in a remote environment, this has inevitably increased operational risk and the safeguards that had to be put in place to tackle this challenge. From a regulatory standpoint, the aim of operational resilience is to encourage firms to consider the impact of disruption they can experience and prevent, adapt, respond to, recover and learn from these so as to protect their customers and businesses. But are firms clear on what is expected from them? So shall we start by defining what is operational resilience and how we got here? Tim, would you like to share your perspective first, maybe? Sure. Um, I've been doing this for a long time now and I've seen an awful lot of things come and go and a lot of different approaches come and go as well. And the bottom line is that most organizations themselves want to protect themselves. And I sometimes think that external forces aren't always helpful because a company wants to be there. It wants to continue to trade. It wants to continue to do business and to deliver the best for its customers. And I can understand why some of the external forces from regulators or, or, or controlling bodies want to get an understanding themselves of how companies are. But I'm not sure that stricter enforcement or stricter rules will actually help or change much in the market. I think over the years we've seen many companies, the, the, the biggest problems that companies have ever had have generally been self-inflicted rather than external uh, pressures as well. And I think the scope of operational resilience at the moment in a lot of organisations is still very physical and uh, old and it needs to be more 
holistic and, and 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 wider. And I do welcome some of the things in the regulations where they look at the uh, the interoperability between different uh, external providers and internal providers. But I'll be interested to get into this debate with the other guys as well, just to see their opinions on on what they think this brings. Andrew, is that your experience as well with um, with the businesses you're working with? Um, are the regulations actually helping or not? Well, it's we're at a real inflection point actually, whereas we're transitioning from uh, a sort of a regulatory regime where operational resilience was implicit rather than explicit into something much more uh, hardcore and concerted, you know, written down and concerted. My path to this subject, operational resilience, goes back quite a long way. And I'm looking at this from a, a trade association for the political point of view. Where I first really heard about operational resilience was in the wake of the RBS, the then RBS's outage, IT outage in 2012, which I think was a, a three-day IT problem, which in hindsight actually looks quite quaint these days that um, people weren't able to, to, to log on uh, you know, with some inconvenience. But it was shortly thereafter that actually Mark Carney, who at that stage was the new um, uh, governor of the Bank of England, coined this phrase operational resilience. And I think there was a growing awareness on the part of the supervisors that actually the, in the wake of the global financial crisis, we'd seen a lot of consolidation across businesses. And that in practice meant that a lot of legacy IT systems were now being operated uh, by you know, single group entities or across group entities, and that was causing problems. I think there was a growing awareness of the future of digitization, which even back then you know, looked very different than it did now, but an awareness that there was a, a challenge coming as uh, firms utilize new technologies to serve their customers. And third is that thanks to around social media and the speed that news travels these days, uh, expectations of customers was much more demanding and much more challenging than it had been even 10 years before. So despite the proliferation in ways that customers engage with their financial services providers, their, you know, their banks, uh, that actually they were becoming much more aware and attuned to and sensitive to any disruption that came, came in front of that. Now, since that time, we've had numerous operational disruptions, uh, some more of an inconvenience rather than a significant issue. Others uh, really quite impactful in the way that they affected customers and the system as a whole. But generally speaking, where we are now is a reflection of at least eight or nine years of hard thinking by regulators and industry, uh, which is exactly to the point that Tim said, and also changing customer expectations. Yeah, I know that, that sounds like a really good summary as to where we've got to. Gavin, do you think that the, the, the new policy statement, for example, is going to actually help with the disruption? Um, I've, yes, I think it will help, but I do think it's the start rather than the end of the journey. Um, admit, I agree with um, I agree with Andrew that it's, you know, a lot of this goes back to 2012 and, and the RBS outage. And I think that was the first kind of time where regulators kind of confronted what this might look like um, in a world where there's social media, where everything happens much faster, um, and where legacy systems really start being a kind of a, um, a drag on not just firms, but the system as a whole. And I think the other thing that's kind of come into the mix much more over the last few years is, is the kind of cyber attack element to it. Uh, and I think the, the regulators, particularly the PRA, who were less interested back in 2012 than the FCA, um, 
Uh, I think the PRA is very conscious of the potential systemic elements in this. So they're looking at things like single point of failure and so on. So I think one of the things we'll probably explore is um, to what extent we'll end up with some kind of industry standard as opposed to individual firms um, doing what doing what they see is right for them. Yeah, that sounds very reasonable. It, obviously, there is a lot for firms to think about in that whole um, potentially upcoming standards um, concept uh, and obviously all the regulatory guidance. But are there any key issues or matters that boards, for example, of organizations need to concern themselves with so to, to make sure they can they can sleep at night? Put it that way. I'll jump in on this. I think one of my frustrations on this is, and I'll go right back to the beginning of our industry. The industry is not much more than 35 years old that's been looking at resilience in different names or forms. And in the early days, an awful lot of people that came into it were either ex-IT or ex-facilities, ex-security or ex-police or ex-army. And the one thing they all had in common was none of them were business people. And they came in to create a, a, a business, an industry to, to start looking at resilience and hardness of, of organisations. And maybe the, our industry, my industry, hasn't grown up enough in, in its quality or its understanding of what's required. Because if you read this 68 pages or whichever one of these documents you read through, after the first few pages when it starts repeating itself, there's all it's saying is what's important to you what, how long can you tolerate it being down and how much would it hurt other people if it was down? That's it. Now, if you haven't been doing that for the last 30 years in your company, you've been doing the wrong job and you shouldn't be in this industry. And because that's that's the simplest thing. Now, to overcomplicate this and then to say you'll need £1.9 million or something to fix it is a terribly scary thing for boards to start reading when, in, in essence, this is quite simple, should already be in place and should have been exercised for the last year as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it seems to be that there seem to be obviously gaps still in place there, which is the most concerning uh, point back to what you were just saying, that they should be doing this already. But are there any really big ticket items, Angie, Gavin, that you think firms really need to think about now as the guidance is coming into play? Well, let me let me sort of um, lead on, uh, sort of follow up from Tim there. Uh, I agree with much of what he says in terms of firms that haven't had one eye to what we now call operation resilience, you know, don't tend to last very long and historically haven't lasted very long. And uh, there are industry and, and firms that are absolutely full of uh, you know, operations professionals who ultimately think about failure. I think what's new is the way that this has all been packaged up under the single narrative and a regulatory expectation put alongside it. Uh, that ultimately sees this as being on par with financial resilience. So if we think back to 10, 12 years ago, the entire focus of the public narrative and the supervisory narrative was around about uh, cleaning up and learning the lessons of the global financial crisis. And so much of that was about capital and leverage ratios and MREL and a whole range of things. What we're seeing now is effectively uh, the response to the disruptions that we spoke about to a bit earlier is that for, uh, that you know, supervisors are effectively saying, okay, this is now on par in financial resilience and trying to put a framework around that in a way that hasn't existed before. So some firms are really good at it. Some firms weren't so good at it. Uh, uh, some, some sectors and industries were much better than ourselves, but now we have to up the game. 
I think that's what's new. And I think what's ultimately new is the way that boards are being asked to think about this and it being also so explicitly linked with the senior manager's regime and the responsibilities under the senior manager's regime. I think the, you know, in terms of what a boards need to ask themselves at this stage, you know, we're about a month away, less than a month away from the publication of these policy statements. Tim's exactly right. If firms haven't already been thinking about this, they've got some ground to make up. But ultimately, the key questions firms need to ask themselves, at least at initial starting point, boards need to ask themselves is, you know, what do we do that's important? What do we do that's important to our customers? And that's the real that's a real change from you know, the regime around recovery and resolution, which is all about the firm and the survivability of the firm. Well, this is this actually puts customers at the very center of consideration. Um, how do we identify weaknesses uh, to the delivery of those service of that service? And then what do we do to mitigate against that? And by that, I mean, effectively investment. You know, where do we need to spend our money to, to really address this? And so that framework that's being put around it which boards are being now asked to consider is new, or at least it's, uh, you know, uh, previous, package, uh, previous experience package in another way. Um, but that's certainly something that boards should be starting with, those sort of three premises as to what do we do, what's important to customers, and, and how, you know, what are the risks to that, that particular service. Um, Gavin, I, I don't know if you want to follow that. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing I would add is... Um, the requirement that firms will come will need to come up with impact tolerances for those um for those business services and actually i i believe that thinking through what that really means in practice um might be quite profound depending on where you are at the moment and what your legacy systems are and so forth so thinking through what it means to kind of be able to essentially say in two days time unless it's really exceptional we're going to have everything up and running again um, I think potentially changes, you know, the profile of your investment strategy and, and all sorts of other things. So, so I think that's for, for me, that's certainly one of the most fundamental things that I probably see that less frequently referenced in, in a lot of the literature than I, I think it deserves. Marina, can I just come back on this as well from a board point of view? The one good emphasis in these focus is the focus on the external organizations. And yeah. I think a lot of boards may naively have lost track of just how much outsourcing they've done and how much secondary tertiary outsourcing they've done as well. Um, and actually, this might be a wake-up call on to say, well, I, I, you know, I've got my stuff in a cloud, I've got it, uh, then there's two parties within the cloud who are delivering X, Y, and Z, and may not actually know sometimes now who is delivering half of their key business or the key operations within their businesses. And I think some of that came out within COVID as well, when other nations had different levels or different problems to what we had and how it caught certain organizations a little bit cold on how much reliance they had in, 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 in other locations. So I think one of the good things from this paper is that that is a big wake up call to get your house in order of what is the real mapping of the external third party landscape that your company works in. I think that plays into um, Andrew's point about uh, the senior manager regime as well, because, you know, I, I think the, you know, what are you really the decision maker for? Do you control the various, you know, the, the kind of supply chains and the various kind of outsourcing? I mean, don't need to go into it in detail here, but the various outsourcing arrangements you have, do you really understand how they work and what would happen, how you could fix them if they went wrong for whatever reason? 
So is ourselves in, in your view the number one kind of subject companies should start thinking now about? I think personally, I think the um, important business areas and the impacts and the tolerances most of our bigger organisations should already have. Uh, yeah. I think tolerance is a great word. It came in about five, six years ago, and it's it's so much more realistic than recovery times or or how long you can be down for. It's, you know, how much can I take this pain before I'm going to start complaining about it? And I think it, what will surprise companies is it's a lot longer than you think. Um, I, I think people have probably had it mentally too short beforehand. So I think they'll do that. But in parallel, yes, I do believe this is a key thing because they'll know less about it and a lot of the organisations we were talking about are really difficult to get information from as well. So I think sometimes we might be going back to the regulators with a we can't get that information statement. Yeah, that sounds absolutely sensible. And obviously, Gavin, you and I do a lot of work around SMCR and and the point around mapping um, the new requirements or the new regulatory expectations um, with, with the regime and the responsibilities. Do you think firms are there yet? Um. So I think a lot of them probably are, but I mean, I, 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 I sort of, I'm a bit of a broken record on this. I don't think we'll really know until it's been properly tested and I don't think it has been. So until something's, you know, something's gone wrong and you see how, you know, how decisions are made, how problems are fixed, we're not really going to know how well the, how well the senior manager regime works. Um, and I think, you know, the absence of, you know, uh, significant enforcement cases is is kind of part of that. Um, I, I think the the other thing I'd probably add to what Tim just said is that I think over time the Financial Policy Committee, which looks at the macroprudential aspects of of our system and is, if you like, top of the pyramid above the PRA and the FCA, in some respects, is going to form its own view as to what the you know what a reasonable impact tolerance is and and I think that's I wouldn't be entirely shocked if that ended up being tighter than than a lot of firms at the moment are contemplating yeah and you mentioned or quite all of you mentioned yeah. quite a lot of you um mentioned the practical steps that firms need to think about now so we have the consultation paper already expecting the policy statement obviously any moment a lot has been said around impact tolerances, so that's clearly key. What are the practical steps firms should be thinking about now? It's been UK finance's experience that firms are at a fairly, look, there's a range of places firms are at at the present time. So you've got some firms which are really at the cutting edge of thinking and they have the resources uh, available to them to really throw their way into this. And then you've got other firms that really are at the start of the journey and they I don't necessarily like using the word journey to describe this because, as Tim said, a lot of them, you know, we all should have been doing something that looks a bit like this for like some time. But what I would say is that the the consultation papers and the way that the consultation papers are written, which we know from our engagement with the authorities, is broadly and thematically going to be the, the approach taken by the policy statements, is that it does provide a... Uh, uh, you know, a very effective step-by-step -step approach that firms can and should take as they look to implement this policy statement. So it starts with important business services. And what I would say is that most firms uh, have already done some hard work uh, to really think about what, what their important business services are. You know, what is that point of contact between the customer and the firm on which they rely? 
The second is to really engage with the customer to understand what the failure of that service would mean to them, okay, and whether it would cause intolerable harm. And that's a quite an important concept because effectively from that it dictates the proportionality of the response. If you're engaging with a particular customer and you represent 80% of their, their business, 80% of their access to market, then clearly a failure in your trading systems or a failure in your execution services you know, represents a, a potential to cause intolerable harm. Equally, if you represent just a small portion of their business, so if you're a broker and you only do a fraction of their business, then when setting your impact tolerances with respect to that customer, or that you know category of customers, depending how you're doing it, you can take a take a different response. So those are the starting points right now. You know, sort out your business services, uh, understand what those are, speak with your customers, really get your head around, uh, and really make sure that you understand the business that you provide them and to what extent they rely on that business. And then from there, set the impact tolerances. Now, I completely agree with Gavin that actually impact tolerances are really tricky. So far, at this point of the uh, of the cycle, in advance of the policy statements, where we this is the area where there's uh, the most sort of greenfield, so to speak, uh, and, and there's a lot of a lot of thinking being done there out there in industry as to what this might look like. And I'm afraid we won't probably know much more than that until the policy statements come out. But look, at this point, as we are mere weeks away, there's more than enough to get our teeth into this and. I think there's some practical things that firms should be doing as well. It's ensuring that all parts of the business are aware that this is coming, um, ensuring that all parts of the business are aware that this is going to have implications for the way the firm at least thinks about the way it provides services. And finally, it's making sure that all parts of the business are really brought into the philosophy that underpins uh, these cha this change and this evolution in the, the approach to operational resilience uh, and that it's something that that, every, that, that it's on everyone to solve and not just individuals. Thanks, Andrew. That's that's really great. I'm sure um, our audience would be delighted to hear that because it's been really helpful. Um, I can see Tim is burning to add into that. <laughs> I think that, uh, I, I mean, Andrew summed it up beautifully there. And I think that the, uh, the, the we've been for years trying to try and put things in language that people can get who don't do this on a daily basis and are not particularly interested but now have to do it. And and putting it as a so what and who cares and when can't you take the pain anymore is a lot easier than talking about RTOs and RPOs and, and impact analysis and, and things that nobody else really cares about people who are in my business. We're the only ones who do. So put it in a language that people can get. You know, if you were in a Monday to Friday nine to five business and you have a problem at seven o'clock on a Friday, you don't have a four hour tolerant period. You have a Monday nine o'clock tolerant period. So is it a next working day tolerance? Rather, this thing about hours and minutes and pounds and pennies. And that's another good point. We've impact analysis. My, this business has been a consultancy led business for a very long time. And that's not led to any cohesive thinking because comp competition is good because it brings variety and change. But why can't the bank, why can't the bank or the, the PS here come together and say, look, here's the five levels of impact we want you to measure against, and here's the six periods of time we want to measure them over, and everybody worked to the same ones. And so we've got a predefined book or banquet that we're working against here, rather than every different type of industry trying to make up their own one, none of it being comparable or measurable against each other, and not having a direct relationship to each other. So you could have a different level of failure over a different period of time and not be able to measure it. In 2005, I led the, the first benchmarking for the financial sector 
one of the things we found out there is you've got a big multinational American or, or, or whatever bank with a huge amount of money to throw at something and a need to be fully resilient. And then underneath these five tiers down, you've got other financial regulated organizations that are running with six men in the in a, in a back of an office somewhere down in, in, in Stockport. And you can't say, and it does say that there's different size of firms. I, I, I get that. But other companies' um, resilience might be being able to be in business in six months' time. It, it's very, very different. And Andrew's key point that I would take away that anybody listening is start at the end, start at the customer. What is the what what, what do they want? And if you've got what they want right and work backwards from that, what the, what these regulations are doing is turning it away from what we want as organisations to what the customer needs. And I think that's good. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely the biggest shift that Andrew was talking about. The mindset is now, rather than thinking about recovery and the business, it's more about actually the customers and having that as a foundation as, a, as opposed to starting from your own firm. Gavin, did you, did you want to add anything to that in particular? Um, just a couple of things briefly. One is, that, I mean, I think the regulators see this as the sort of equivalent to um, Herstadt settlement risk in the 1970s. So which again goes back to kind of, you know, what's the impact on the customer? So I wouldn't underestimate the importance of how they see it. It's not a normal regulatory initiative where it kind of comes and goes. Um, and secondly, related to that, I think there's there is an international element to this. Um, I think it's slowed because of COVID, but I think you know, towards the back end of this year, I wouldn't be surprised if Basel and the FSB and so on started picking up, picking this up again. Um, I think in the UK, we're we're probably ahead in thinking actually, um, but but I think it will be with solar winds and so on. I think it will be increasingly important um, in the US and also across the kind of international regulatory networks. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. Tim, Andrew, what are your views on the international aspect? Andrew, off you go first. Yeah, look, I think the uh, complex is the quick and easy answer yeah. on that one. There is a there's a real difference in approaches between the US and the UK. Although I would I would be quite firm in saying when we think about international, don't just think about the dichotomy between the US and the UK. But for a starting point, the, the US has, has taken a different approach thus far to the treatment of Operation Resilience. They're viewing it as you know, the way that you approach this issue and the way that you solve the, the challenges, which actually the UK regulators you know, have identified and looked to, challenge, looked to solve is through the pre-existing arrangements. It's a much more complex patchwork of regulators in the US than it is over here. I always marvel when people talk about mm -hmm. the inability of the FCA and the BOA sometimes to be on the same page. I mean, you know, to have that same conversation with a US bank and it's, uh, they just say they they take the, U, the UK version of the UK uh, uh, approach any day of the week. But the, so there's a real challenge there. It's gonna be, there's going to be an added level of complexity because we are expecting the Basel Committee, the BIS Bank of International Settlements, to release its um, findings with respect to the, what they consulted on last year in terms of creating a more globally consistent approach. We know that even as they wrote that, even as uh, BIS wrote that particular consultation paper, there were some fundamental differences between the US and the UK as to the approach. What I'd say is for the rest of the world is they're at a real inflection point. 
um, Japan, South Korea, Australia, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they've become the Bank of England has done a really, really good job of actually lifting this issue to the forefront of global regulation and saying, look what we're doing here, which as a result means that those jurisdictions that I just um, listed are now doing some heavy thinking as to the approach they take. Will they go down the UK approach of seeing resilience as an outcome and designing a system around that? Or will they go down the US approach of seeing resilience as being a result of a number of pre-existing approaches to IT and cybersecurity or change management and otherwise, and having it much more diversified and spread across a whole range of jurisdictional approaches and, and rules and regulations. It's 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 going to be very complex. And unfortunately, um, for many of our members, they'll be right in the middle of it. Yeah, I was going to say, those who operate internationally are going to have a fairly complex challenge to cope with um, in the years to come. I think that uh, it's going to be an interesting couple of years in the short term. We still don't know the full picture of what Brexit will mean to us. We, in a world of IT, which is a global single, almost global cloud, nations are sometimes becoming more isolationist rather than singular, uh, which is odd. We do not know what the full uh, impact of COVID will be for the next 18 months in terms of open travel, open movement, not just on the ether, but in in reality and what that means for business. We There's lots of things we don't know. And going back again 30-odd years, in terms of continuity and stuff britain has always been one of the the, the the at the front of the world of our planning and thinking of this and a lot of people have picked up from us but i think if we can do it right here again other people will follow us because it generally gives uh, a stronger base for business and i think one of the things we do need to make sure though is in this resilience is that we don't just think of the physical like the it and the operational side but we also look at the, the products and the operation and the leadership as well and and making sure that resilience is, is is from top to bottom. And that will then have a, a for international banks in particular, international trading organizations, will have a feed into the rest of the world where they see, well, would you are doing this as a way of thinking in this or in this country, that should trickle back into another country. And you said, Tim, that we there are lots of things we don't know. But if we had a crystal ball, what do you think are the biggest struggles that firms are going to have in, in trying to implement proper operational resilience? Well, I'll start on that. First one is, um, I think a lot of them will overcomplicate it. <laughs> and I think that they will uh, try and fix the entire, you know, eat the elephant in one bite instead of instead of doing it by single nibbles. And I think that the, the this is not a difficult thing to do if you actually think, I need to know what's important to me, how long can I tolerate it being down? What am I going to do about it? And who I depend on? And what's the impact of my customer? Just take a few simple steps, draw out some simple maps, find out. I think some of the companies will, will struggle to find out. Uh, this sounds so stupid, but honestly, it's based upon its experience around the whole world. Find out what they do and what they have to do it with. Um, you know, what, what IT they have, where their IT is, what their IT does for them. I think some of them will struggle with that initially on the, on the, on the technical side. Um, but if, if they if they take it simply, they, t they they focus on what the customer needs and work backwards. This is not a difficult exercise. Gavin, your thoughts? Um, I, I think it's it's really for. I mean, we started off talking about boards, and I think it's putting something like this, which is probably let's not call it a journey, but it's it's a multi-year challenge um, against all the kind of short-term 
demands that they're going to have, particularly any time, but particularly in the next six to 12 months. Great. Angie? Um, I don't think I'll probably add too much to that, actually. I think the guys have pretty neatly summarised areas of focus and, and where the challenges come from, yeah. So I'll, I'll let them have the last word on that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, Gavin, Tim, Angie, thank you very much for this absolutely fascinating discussion today. Uh, it's been having done this for so many years and with so many businesses. Clearly um, a change uh, of mindsets for organisations to start with, particularly in terms of putting the customer as a starting point and thinking it backwards. Uh, lots, of things, lots of things to think about in terms of how you put operational resilience rightly in the sense of starting simple and making sure that it's on the board's agenda. Um, I guess we are all waiting, as is, uh, as are our clients, to um, to see the policy statement. But as Andrew said, hopefully it won't be too different from the from the consultation paper. So uh, we know the direction of travel certainly. To leave you with some more regulatory food for thought, we have recently published our financial services regulatory handbook, your one-stop shop for all key regulatory developments in the year ahead. We also run monthly financial services regulatory update webinars with David Mori and the one and only Gavin Stewart. If that's not enough for you, you can also sign up to the financial services regulatory newsletter to receive weekly updates and invites into your inbox. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. We'll be back with our next episode next month to talk about other exciting topics of the risk and regulatory world. Thank you again and goodbye.